Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 20. Went to Costco a couple of weeks ago. I know you find that hard to believe, but... And I'm walking along and I'm, I'm scoping out the, the eating area and the, the line. And, and there's a young mother just loving her baby. And, I mean, it, it caught my attention. Um, you know, baby's in the cart. And there's this mother doing that thing, you know. And I was getting ready to make a comment, which I will to strangers once in a while. And, you know, something like, well, boy, somebody sure loves that baby or, or something like that. And as I'm just getting about ready to say it, she looks at me and I go, oh, that's somebody I know. <laughs> She was a little kid in our youth group in Nooksack 30 years ago. And uh, she was just loving that baby and smiling and talking to that baby. And uh, that baby's a foster child. And I would have never known that by the way she was loving it. Her love for that child was obvious. And it was a blessing to behold. Real love shows. And it shows in John 20 as we start to consider the events of the resurrection. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looked in and saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then came Simon Peter following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around the head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the Scripture. Now remember, John is writing this, 60 years down the road, and he's writing back, and he says, For they as yet didn't know that he must rise again. They didn't get it, he says, but they got it. He says, he's talking about himself. He says, I got it right there. They did not know that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. We're going to talk about Mary today and Mary's love for Christ. 
as we begin to consider these wonderful events of the resurrection. And the first thing that we understand is this. Mary's love for Christ is seen in her presence with Christ. How many of the disciples that we now call the apostles were at the crucifixion? Only one is named, and that's John. And John hesitates to name himself because he doesn't want to seem braggadocious. But look at this. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar at the crucifixion, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Christ. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. He laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. He rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Do you understand that wherever Jesus was, Mary was? And when he was being crucified, she was there, standing afar. And she was there when Joseph and Nicodemus came and took his body down, and she followed. And they brought him to Joseph's tomb and put him in, and she sat there watching. Nobody else was there. None of the men. Mary's love for Christ is seen in her presence with Christ. She was there when he died. She was there at the burial place. And now she is coming to complete the process of what they would have called in that day a proper burial. The Jewish people buried fairly immediately, as they still do, within 24 hours of a person dying. In that day, they did not embalm, as they don't today, unless there's a unique circumstance. But they would take linen cloths and put spices in them and wrap the body. And we heard about Joseph and Nicodemus doing that last week. And by estimates, it was somewhere between 50 and 75 pounds of spices that they put in there. But she came... Because what Joseph and Nicodemus did was done quickly because the, the, the sun was going down and it was going to be the Sabbath. And if they had been around his dead body on the Sabbath, it would have been a problem for their other ritual uh, observances. And so they hurried up and got it done and closed the tomb. And Mary came back two day, three days later. Uh, if you do the math, we would call it two days. They would call it three because of the way they count them with the sun going down. She came back, and in one of the count, accounts, she says, who's going to roll the stone away? She expected to find him and to go in and finish the burial process. Do you know the word translated tomb? Or in the King James Version, you have the word sepulcher. It literally means a memorial. When we use the word grave, we mean a hole in the ground. And when we think of tomb, we think of a cave. But it literally meant a memorial. It was the place of memorial, if you will. Mary went to the place of memorial. One author put it this way. A brave woman, she was not afraid of the dark, 
not afraid of the graveyard in the dark, not afraid of the Roman guard. So perhaps the perfect love that cast out fear so filled her heart that there was no room for any other thought. She came to the tomb as one with a great love goes to the grave today, not yet ready to say goodbye. She came to complete the burial process out of a heart of love for Christ, like the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with perfume. This verse was written about that woman who anointed his feet. She hath done what she could. What else could Mary Magdalene do? She couldn't do much. But she said, I can give him a proper burial. Mary's love for Christ is seen in her presence with Christ. Where Christ was, she was. Number two, Mary's love for Christ is seen in her concern for Christ. Look again with me at John 20, verse 1, please. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had not been taken away. And she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Now, we understand, first of all, that Mary did not look in. Um, But we understand she saw the stone rolled away and she assumed they had stolen his body. I don't understand why, but grave robbing actually was a common, a common occurrence in the day, so much so that there were specific laws against it in the Roman Empire. But one of the things we need to think about with this account of the resurrection is the timetable. Um, and I will offer it to you, and if you want to copy it later, you can. But several authors that I read put together a timetable, and as I reread the text, it became obvious to me some of the things that we struggle with. And one of the authors even put a a time list on it, if you will. And so he said, about 5 a.m., Mary Magdalene, along with Mary, the mother of James and Salome, and perhaps some other women, set out for the tomb. It was still dark, but dawn was near. Remember it says here, she came while it was still dark. Mary Magdalene hurried on ahead of the others and found the tomb open and then ran to tell Peter and John. Her response to the open tomb was to run and tell the leaders, Peter and John, look, they've stolen his body. So she runs off without seeing the initial blessing, if you will, of the empty tomb. About 5.30 a.m., the other women arrived. She ran ahead to see the tomb and then ran off to tell John. The other women kept coming. They were also on this mission of giving Christ a proper burial. About 5.30 a.m., the other women arrived. And by this time, the sun was up, and they saw an angel who sent the message to the disciples. He said, you women, you go tell his disciples that he has risen as he said. Mary Magdalene didn't get that message because she wasn't right there. About six o'clock, another group, among whom was Joanna, arrived at the tomb, and they saw what they took to be two young men who gave them the words of comfort and instruction that Christ had risen, and go go tell his disciples. About 6.30 a.m., Peter and John came to the tomb after, after Mary had gone and gotten them and said, Hey, come and see this. 
About seven o'clock, Mary Magdalene evidently followed Peter and John back, but did not go home when they first did. And so now Peter and John have come. They've looked in and John says they believed and they take off. And here comes Mary. And Mary comes in now sort of last to the party, if you will. And she looks in and here here are the here are the angels. And then shortly after this, Jesus revealed himself to the group of women who were coming back to the tomb. And so Mary was going to the graveside, but she didn't get what she expected. Look at verse 20 again, um, excuse me, verse 11. So all this has taken place, and now Mary's back at the tomb. She's standing outside the tomb, and in your English Bible it probably says weeping. There's actually a word for this in the original which indicates she was really emoting big time. We would call it wailing, mournful, I've lost my loved one, sobs. And so the angel says to her in chapter 20, verse 13, what's wrong with you? (laughs) I mean... The angel's sitting there going, uh, probably the angel was up in heaven while Jesus was being crucified going, what in the world's going on? And then he dies, he's buried, and now God says to the angel, you go down there and tell those disciples what's going on. And he sits there and and he's all excited, and, and this woman is there crying, and he's going, why are you crying? For all we know, Jesus could have already walked up behind Mary. And the angel's going, dude, Mary, turn around. Why are you crying? Why are you weeping? What's wrong with you? They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where he is. That's her response. Now, what does that tell you about Mary? That tells you that Mary was so concerned for even his body in death to be taken care of, that she was, she was heartbroken that something had happened, and, and she had to take care of him. She was that concerned about him. And then Mary's love for Christ is seen in her desire for connection to Christ. Look at verse 14, please. Now, when she had said this, she had said, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. She turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there, and she did not know that it was Jesus. You could fill in your own reason as to why. She'd been crying. Jesus did not look like he did when he came off the cross. Jesus didn't walk about covered with blood and injuries. We know that he maintained the, the, the print of the, of the nail in his hand and the pierce in his side. But other than that, we have no reason to believe that he still looked the same in terms of being battered. And so she expected to see the battered body of Christ. And here stands a man, and she doesn't recognize him. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She supposed him to be the gardener, said, Sir, if you have taken him away, you tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary... And she turned and said to him, Rabboni. There were three different words for rabbi or teacher or leader, discipler, if you will. And this was the highest of those words. And and she says, you know, you are really, really the great one. Something like that. And then Jesus says, stop clinging to me. 
That's literally how it reads in the original. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Um, I believe the reason that he said stop clinging to me had to do with a change in relationship, not the fact that he still needed to go up to heaven and come back. Jesus had told them earlier, look, someday I'm going to go away and then I'm going to come back so that you can be with me always. Mary has just lost the Savior in her mind. She's lost him and now he's come back and she fell down and got a hold of his feet. Here's what the other women did, and I'm sure she's doing the same thing. As they went to tell his disciples, Jesus met them, met the other women. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. They got down on all four and hugged his feet. The only thing I've seen close to that is in Bangladesh when John Sirkar walks into a church or a place where there are other believers, they get down and kiss his feet. Mary loved Jesus. And her love is shown in a desire for connection. I don't ever want to let you go. We have some newlyweds in our church. They can probably relate to this most explicitly. Those of us who have been married a while think, eh, I'm kind of hot. Would you scoot over a little bit right there? <laughs> but not Mary. Mary's hanging on for dear life. I'm never letting you go. I let you go once and I won't let you go again. I believe what we're seeing from Mary is this. She wanted his presence to be permanent in his life, in her life. And Jesus said, stop clinging to me. He had to help Mary understand, Mary, this isn't the return that I talked about. See, in John 14, he said, I'm going to the Father, and then I'm going to come back, and we'll be together forever. He's going, no, I'm still going to ascend to the Father. Now, she didn't know all the great blessing that was coming in the Holy Spirit who would come into her, and she would have a connection to God and an awareness of God. She didn't know about all that, so all she could think to do was to hang on to him physically. And I believe what Jesus is saying is, Mary, you have to let go for now, but I will be coming back to take you with me, but just not yet. I have to go to the Father And you will have my spiritual presence, but not my bodily presence. The real question I want to ask today to challenge your hearts is this. Why was Mary's love so intense for Christ? And I would offer this answer. Mary's love for Christ resulted from the deliverance she received from him. Mary Magdalene is mentioned, and I should have mentioned this earlier, but Mary is mentioned in all four Gospels as being the first one to the tomb. That's really significant, really significant. And I think that it comes from the only other reference that we have to her, about her, which is in Luke 8. Now, it came to pass afterward that Jesus went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, they were also with him, Mary called Magdalene, 
out of whom had come seven demons. Some people have tried to identify Mary Magdalene with the woman who poured the perfume on Jesus' feet, but there's no indication that those two are the same woman. That woman was also a greatly troubled woman. But this Mary Magdalene had seven demons. She was possessed by seven demons, and Christ delivered her, and that's why she followed him around. It says all these people were with him, including Mary. What did demon possession look like in the time of Christ? We're not told what it looked like for her, but here are three examples of what demon possession looked like. And the first is this, it looked like physical illness. And here's an example. Then Jesus' fame went through all Syria, and they brought him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. There's a clear inference here that some, pe- some people, please don't get this wrong, Some people who had epilepsy, some people who were paralyzed, some people who had other ailments, it was because of demons. Is that possible today? Yes, it's possible today. Do we have a way to know? No, we do not. We need to be very careful about that. But clearly, that was one of the ways that that demon possession manifested itself. Number two, sometimes demon possession looked like physical handicap. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. In this case, demon possession looked like tremendous physical uh, handicap. In the third case, it's more the, the, the famous kind that we remember from the Gospels. Sometimes it looked like, and I tried to coin a word here, fanatical madness. Um, I don't like the word crazy because uh, I don't believe people are crazy. I believe generally they have spiritual problems, but... But you understand what I'm saying here in terms of fanatical madness. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him. And when he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness, Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. Wow. Unbelievable. Of course, legion, I think, means like a thousand. I don't know if he had a thousand demons, but he had many. And Mary Magdalene had seven. I have no idea what that would be like, you know, experientially. But it had to be (laughs) extremely hard. Put, put, your own, uh, put your own descriptive words in there. Mary Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. Christ delivered her of seven demons. And the result in her is this. The wife, this is talking about the people who followed Jesus and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Stewart and Susanna and many others who provided from, for him from their substance. When Jesus cast the demons out of this woman. She went, man, I'm going to follow you anywhere. I'm just going to do for you. I'm going to use all of my money for you. I'm going to serve you. And in the end, when he died and needed to be buried, she says, I'm going to be there to bury you. and I'm going to make sure it's done right. She, she had a sense of deliverance and of joy because of that in him. And so she loved him greatly. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. 
I want to look at the other woman that we see here. Who was greatly relieved of her personal burden because I think this woman's example teaches us what was going on in Mary's mind. Luke chapter 7 verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Said, Jesus, come to my house for dinner. And Jesus went to the Pharisee's house. And he sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now, we don't know that she was a prostitute. But we know that her sin was public enough that that was her reputation. She had a reputation of a public sinner. There's only a handful of things that could have been. And it probably does mean she was a prostitute. At the very least, maybe we'd say immoral. A woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And she stood at Jesus' feet and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to him saying, this man, he spoke to himself. These are his internal thoughts. Do you get that? He didn't say this out loud. This man, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered, <laughs> answered his thoughts. That's a scary thought right there. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One, to, one owned 500 denarii, let's call that a year and a half's wages, and the other owed 50 or 50 days wages. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one that he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman, but spoke to Simon. And he said, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, no greeting. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And then Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What was the difference between the Pharisee and the sinful woman? First of all, there's a different awareness of sin. Now, obviously, in that culture, her sin was front and center, easy to see, easy to condemn, she was a public sinner. But the Pharisee didn't see himself as a sinner at all. Like this Pharisee. 
He spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Again, a public sinner and what I'm going to call a private sinner. The Pharisee stood and prayed with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, this tax collector, he went down to his house righteous, right with God, justified, rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Mary Magdalene looked at herself and went, man, I messed up. And Jesus made me whole. This woman, this public sinner, she just said, oh, I've heard that Jesus forgives sins. That would be so great. Maybe she was the woman who was caught in adultery. We don't know, but she's just there crying. And, and, and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. She knew how much of a sinner she was. The only way you can see yourself as not needing God's forgiveness, both for salvation and for daily living, is for you to judge yourself by your own list of sins and righteous deeds. That's what the Pharisees did. They said, here is a list of righteousness. And, and, and in fact, we, we saw it here. I'm not like other men. That's always on the top of the list of self-righteousness. We look around and we go, see that person, see that person, see that person. I'm not like them. I'm better than that. Well, that might be true. You might be better than them. But is that God's standard of judgment? No. I'm not like this other man. I'm not an extortioner, unjust, an adulterer. Even as this tax collector. If we don't keep looking into the perfect law of liberty and determining our sin and our righteousness by this standard, we will become self-righteous. We will say, I'm pretty good. And the result of that is less love for Christ. I mean, what's the big deal about a guy who forgives your sin if you're not really a sinner? I don't need that. I'm good enough. And that's how the Pharisee thought. We don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go with the girls who do. There have been lists. There's always a list. But the more we know God's standard and use it to judge ourselves, the more we realize how sinful we are. Even as born-again Christians, we look in our lives and we say, Oh, God, I, I, I failed again. The Apostle Paul had the same problem. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves... 
and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Do you know what that kind of church looks like? That's the kind where we come to church and we kind of size each other up. Yeah, you're okay. When I use this standard, I got no basis to point a finger at you. Because there's three fingers pointing back at me. And when I use this standard, it's easier for me to love God because He keeps on forgiving. What was the difference between the sinful woman and the Pharisee? A different awareness of sin, and number two, a different response to the Savior. Jesus chronicled what this guy didn't do. And and you know what Jesus chronicled here, if you're not aware of the social customs of the day? This guy didn't do what what we would consider normal hospitality. We have a Bible study at our home on on Thursday night. And we all kind of have certain chairs that we sit in. (laughs) I tried sitting in a different chair once. Somebody said, no, no, that's your chair over there. It's my house. I can sit where I want. (laughs) We don't even get up and... Open the door when people walk in. Doors open. You know, you're not company anymore. You just walk in. I suppose that makes me a lousy host. I don't know. Take your shoes off. Leave them on. I don't care. Just make yourself comfortable. That's, that's social custom to me. But in the day of Christ, when somebody came, they were wearing sandals. Their feet were dirty. And so you'd say, take your sandals off. And, and you'd have a servant, of course, wash their feet. You'd never wash their feet. But you'd wash their feet. And then you'd give them the, the, the two-sided kiss. Maybe if it had been a particularly long day, you give them some water to wash up, a little oil to put on to anoint themselves. Jesus said, you didn't do any of the normal social customs for me. We're not talking about an extra show of some magnificent love. You didn't do the minimum. But look at this woman, how much she loved. And so the attitude of her response was worship. I did a little a bit of fresh study on the word worship. And you know what the word worship means in the Bible? That's what it literally means. They did it when they came into the presence of the king, because the king didn't have to let you live if he didn't like the way you looked that day. And so you get down, and when the king finally decided he was going to talk to you, he'd say, okay, what do you want? But that's what these women did. They got down around Jesus' feet and they said, oh, Jesus. The attitude of worship is the attitude of humility. It's us realizing how great the Savior is. She knew she was a sinner. Mary Magdalene and this woman both. And she loved him because he had forgiven her. Arthur Pink commented this way, where there is little sense of our indebtedness to Christ, there will be little affection for Him. Where light views of our sinfulness, our depravity, our utter unworthiness are entertained, there will be little expression of gratitude and praise. It is those who have the clearest sight of their deservingness of hell whose hearts are the most moved at the amazing grace which snatched them as brands from the burning that are the most devoted among Christ's people. 
I've certainly made the observation over the years that those who come to Christ as adults tend to naturally, dare I say it, have a greater sense of the deliverance that God has brought in their life than those of us who are saved as children. We've got to work a little harder at it because we've got to read the Scripture. We've, we've got to see who we are. There's a temptation for us not to see ourselves as sinful as we really are. And then after we know the Lord for a long time, we kind of get in a familiar pattern. And maybe we don't stop and say, you know what, I was a terrible sinner. Even if I was four years old when I got saved, I was born in sin. And God saved me when I had nothing to give Him, nothing to contribute. Both of these women got down on their knees and worshipped. Oh, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. We know that in this new era of Christ, it isn't more spiritual to bow or to stand or to kneel or to sit. But it's important that our heart bow. Does your heart bow before God? Do you see him as great and you as needy and undeserving? Because if you do, you're going to love like Mary loved. The attitude of her response was worship. The heart of her response was relationship. I think one of the things us fundamentalist, doctrine-oriented folks, and I'm saying us, one of the things we miss is the element of relationship to God person to person. Now, I didn't say human to human. God is a person. We are created in the image of God, and personhood is what that image encloses. So he is a person, and we are a person, and we are capable of having relationship with him. We are capable of talking to him and of listening to him, of spending time with him. She wanted to be with Mary Magdalene, didn't know all the stuff we know today. All she could think of is, I'm going to get a hold of this guy and not let go. We can spend time in the Word listening to God talk, listening to Christ talk. We can spend time in prayer talking to Him. We can spend time in praise through song and word with His people. I talked to someone recently, not anybody who's sitting here today, who said, I'm just not that into singing. That's just not who I am. I I understand that worship does not have to include singing. But do you know that that's what you'll be doing for all of eternity. They sang a new song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Those words are taken right from the book of Revelation, and it says we will sing a new song to Him. I want to tell you what I think is the problem with a lot of folks in worship. Right worship requires Losing yourself in the object of worship. Truly, there are some people in this world who sing poorly. Can't carry a tune in the bucket. And it doesn't matter a lick to God. What matters is the fruit of our lips giving praise to His name, Hebrews 13. Now, you don't have to do that by singing. I understand that. 
But I, I wonder if you really love Christ and appreciate what He's done in your life, wouldn't you like to be in a place where He's being praised? Wouldn't you like to come someplace and just hear everybody going, Praise the Lord! But you've got to lose yourself. You've got to stop caring about what people think about you. The woman with the valuable perfume, she didn't reason it out. She just gave it. She just lost herself in Christ. King David was so given over to the joy of the Lord when they, when they uh, brought the, uh, the, uh, the altar, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. All I could think of was mercy seat. He was so given over to joy that he danced before the Lord with all his might. Now David was a mighty man of valor. He was, he was a, he was a strong man. He was a warrior. And I can't imagine what it looks like when one of those guys danced with all their might. But his wife was embarrassed by it. Oh, wasn't the king glorious out there dancing? And apparently he, he stripped down to his underwear. Okay, He wasn't naked. One of the texts talks about him being naked. But in other words, he, he took off his robe because it was impeding his worship. And as my father-in-law would have said, he flat got with it. <laughs> and David... When his wife was told David, said, David, you made a fool out of yourself today. The king of Israel, dancing with the common men. What did David say? David said, I will honor the Lord and be humble in my own sight. David said, I'm not, I don't care what people think about me. I'm dancing for the Lord. Who cares if you can't sing well? Who cares if your prayers aren't so eloquent? Who cares if your stories of God's blessing aren't as big as someone else's? It is for the Lord. Right worship requires losing yourself in the object of worship. Number three, the action of her response was service. This woman, the, 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 you know, Mary Magdalene, she served Christ. She was going to take care of his needs. Whatever it was, she was going to do it. The sinful woman, she took, by some accounts, perfume worth a year's wages and poured it out on the feet of Christ. The Apostle Paul had a worshipful attitude. Last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. I am the least of the apostles. I am not worthy to be called an apostle. No arrogance in him. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not wasted. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. The real motivation for service should not be the needs of the church or even the community. It should be our appreciation for God's great work in our lives. We should be coming saying, thank God. Thank God for what He's done and serving out of that heart. That young mother that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon never told me she loved that child. She didn't have to. Heavenly Father, help our love to show. 
so easy for us to get wrapped up in knowing truth or doing things and, 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 and forgetting to just stop and realize what you've done in our lives. Help our love to show so much that we don't have to tell people, but they just see it. Thank you for this great example in Mary Magdalene. May we aspire to be great lovers of you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.